This is Matt Hurt at Obsessive Viewer on Twitter, and this is a special episode of ObsessiveViewer.com's The Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to The Obsessive Viewer. We're a weekly movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show each episode. You can find back episodes at ovpodcast.com, uh, find the blog at obsessiveviewer.com, and subscribe to the subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer. Also, a quick note before I get started, Sharktober and Irvington 2 is a an event here in Indianapolis that we'll be hosting on October 16th. It's We're going to be screening short horror films from local filmmakers and giving away raffles, prizes, and interviewing the filmmakers uh, at the Irving Theater in Irvington. All money we make is going to go directly to the Irvington Historical Society. You can find more information about that at shocktoberinirvington.com. This episode is a special episode, as I mentioned before. Um, it's just me and uh, a guest that I interviewed. Um, Tiny's not here for this one, but he'll be here later this week for our discussion of the movie Straight Outta Compton. But this episode is special because it is an interview that I conducted with the writer and director of Ask Me Anything. Ask Me Anything is a movie that I watched recently that you can hear me talk about in the potpourri section of OV-124, the comedy sequels episode. Um, Ask Me Anything was just a really, really mind-blowing experience watching it on Netflix. It was, it was a great indie drama, and I was delighted to have the opportunity to interview um, Mr. Burnett um, via Skype. So before I get to the interview, I just want to mention that you can follow Allison at Allison underscore Burnett on Twitter. Uh, that's two L's and two T's. Uh, you can also contact him at AllisonBurnett.com. And you can also email the main character of Ask Me Anything at katiecampenfelt.com. Um, Ask Me Anything was an, a movie that he adapted himself from his novel, Undiscovered Girl, which you can find on Amazon and, and any, anywhere really that you find books. And also, uh, Mr. Burnett just recently published the sequel to Undiscovered Girl called Another Girl. And... Finally, uh, like about two days after we recorded this interview, uh, news broke that a script penned by Allison is going to be made into a movie. Uh, the movie is a romantic drama called Oxford. Uh, the film follows an American Rhodes Scholar who, after arriving at Oxford University, falls for an arrogant teaching assistant who is quietly fighting terminal cancer. When she finds out the reason he is so standoffish, they make the most of each day traveling the world together. I'm super excited for this, and I'm, I mean, after getting the chance to talk to Allison, Allison Burnett and, and reading his book and, and seeing his movie, I just have super, so, I'm, I'm so looking forward to just seeing his career um, and following his career from, from here on out. So, without further ado, here is the interview with uh, Allison Burnett. Uh, thanks for listening, and hope you enjoy. Um, first of all, thanks again for coming on. This is uh, I'm really excited to talk to you because it's rare that I get to talk to the people that are responsible for the 
things that I'm really impressed by and fond of, I guess. Um, so it's, so it's, so it's a real treat. And, uh, for the listeners, why don't you kind of tell us, tell us about yourself, uh, how you got started in, in the business and, and all that. Well, first let me tell you that I think you'd be surprised how often the creators of movies that you might like, um, especially if they're independent films, how accessible they will be because one of the great, um, challenges in the marketplace these days is that there's just such a glut of choices and we're all just being besieged by choices there's whole tv shows we've never even seen that our best friend loves and we don't even get to it because we're bombarded so if you um so if you approach uh, a filmmaker or a, a tv creator through twitter or facebook somehow through social media and you get to them i think you'll be surprised how many people will say yes you know, they're just people like you, and they're right. just sitting around. They want people to see what they've done, and they know that the world is drowning in choices, and that people are much more accessible, I think, these days. Um, okay, well, how I got started was I spent um, my 20s in New York City um, toiling in hideous shit-eating anonymity. Um, I, was, uh, I sort of started off for about three months as an actor, after college where I went to Northwestern, I quit acting. I devoted myself to playwriting. I went to a one-year program in playwriting at the Juilliard School. And playwriting at that point in the 80s was largely devoted to sort of broad, shticky sitcoms put on the stage. Like the the theater that I loved of O'Neill and Tennessee Williams and... and, um, Arthur Miller, like that tradition was really dying fast. And I felt really um, sort of separate from what was being done around me. So I began writing uh, fiction and novels. And I wrote hundreds of pages of fiction that never saw the light of day. I didn't have an agent. I proofread um, at a, a legal law firm at night. And I tutored high school kids on the SAT test during the day. And I just worked my tail off for about 10 years, half the time making money, half the time writing. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really realize how much I was actually teaching myself about writing during that period of hell. But, you know, I couldn't, you know, I would go to a party and just want to hide my head in shame. I was just, I saw a lot of my friends at Northwestern were doing great things in the arts. And I just felt like it was just, I was going to be trapped at that law firm till the end of time. Um and then around the end, toward the end of my 20s, I, uh, I met this guy who had been a bank robber, and he had been in jail for eight years, and he really was looking for someone that would help him get his stories on paper. And I wouldn't say he was necessarily a writer because he didn't come from that place, and he didn't have a lot of literary training or experience, but he really could tell a story instinctively and he was a very good raconteur and a great year for dialogue and i knew the minute i met him that if i wrote with him that somehow it was going to give me a career um i knew that writing for me in my 20s was was like as it is for many young writers was sort of self-therapeutic and and i was very close to what i was writing and very close to my uh heroes and because I'm a writer. I am, by definition, not a very uh, active person in the grand arena of the world. I mean, there are exceptions, (laughs) but 
I'd say for as a, as a rule writers are often observers. And so my autobiographical heroes tended to get passive um, because writers are passive. And um, so he was anything but that. And I knew that writing with him would deliver me from my, my hell. So I wrote two screenplays with him. He came to Los Angeles. He slept on the floor of Jason Bateman, whom he had met at a club. Jason was probably a good, you know, eight years younger than we were both, than we both were. Um, And he went to parties and he found us a manager and he found us an agent or I think maybe eventually an agent. We had a manager. And the next thing I know, I get this call that we've sold one of our scripts to Roger Corman. Wow. The king of uh, of B movies, mm-hmm. and um, and my first thought was, wow, good for Roger Corman. He finally wants to make a really good serious movie. <laughs> I was a little bit naive. I didn't realize that it was going to go the other way. So it was a very serious movie about my writing partner's experiences in jail, um, and it was about race relations in prison. But it was a serious movie, and and so I just said, you know, what the hell? It's time to leap into the void. It's that old sort of Buddhist idea, you know, you jump off the cliff and suddenly you, and when you're certain you're going to die, you, you, you suddenly sprout wings and you fly. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of had read that enough in enough New Age books that I sort of sensed that what I was doing was the thing you have to do. So I just sold all my shit and I came to L.A. And I was 31. I made At that point, I had made $100 as a writer. I really had nothing. But what I knew that L.A. would give me is hope. And I knew that I had a ton more writing experience than a lot of my young uh, uh, um, competitors Mm -hmm. because um, I had spent a whole decade writing my ass off. So I came out here and um, we uh, they turned our beautiful, um, serious movie into a C-level kickboxing movie Mm. called Force to Fight, Blood Fist 3, Force to Fight. So it was a really, um, it was really a debasing introduction to Hollywood, mm-hmm. but it got me. And within about a year, we were in the Writers Guild. And about four years later, after writing with my partner during the day at night, I would work on my own stuff because the stuff I wanted to do was separate from what I wanted to do with him. And I wrote a script and it sold what it was like a big spec sale. And that was exactly, you know, 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And from that moment on, I I, I knew it at the time. Like, I never had to do anything again that I didn't want to do. I never had to do a job. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's where my life really changed. And that was probably my 12th script. I mean, we wrote a lot of scripts, he and I did. And I wrote some on my own. I wrote with him. Mm -hmm. We worked around the clock. I mean, so even though it looked like a Cinderella story, it was gruelingly hard work. And I would say the next... The next sort of milestone was when um, I got my first studio movie made, which was Autumn in New York. And about four days before they shot the movie, um, Richard Gere had them bring in a rewriter right before shooting. And the guy just sort of crapped on the script in a whole bunch of places. And so if you watch the movie, you'll sort of see that it's stylistically right. And then it just kind of goes south and then it comes back and then it, it's just sort of it, it goes back and forth. And um, and that was and I realized that if I could write a script that would get me all those meetings and all the work it brought me and all the acclaim in the town and it could be turned into a movie that critics were ridiculing, that I was never really going to be safe and have any sense of authorial control. And that's when I began to look back at all the hundreds of pages I had written in my 20s in New York and I reimagined them with a new narrator, with a new point of view 
and I, I narrated them um, not self-therapeutically, but from the point of view of a fat, tall, drunk, bald, middle-aged, bipolar, gay alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Maybe I said drunk and alcoholic. Um, <laughs> and he's hilarious, and he's read everything in all the Western literature. And he could, I could just give full voice to any kind of comedy or point of view or my or reading or erudition. Anyway, so I wrote this character that, and, and he began telling those stories that I was writing in my twenties, and that led to the publication of three novels: Christopher, The House Beautiful, and Death by Sunshine. And they're all narrated by this sort of bigger-than-life kind of Ignatius Riley kind of hilarious <laughs> madman. Um, and so, and then when there was the, and then in two thousand, and so I just went on my merry way, doing a lot of screenwriting jobs, mm-hmm. falling in with a company called Lakeshore Entertainment. That I've done six movies at Lakeshore. I've had a great time and a great career there. And they let me do everything from like a fame fame for teenagers Mm -hmm. to Feast of Love, which is like an R-rated adult movie, Mm -hmm. to Untraceable, which is basically high-end torture porn. (laughs) Um, I mean, and Underworld, they just let me write all different kinds of things. And I've used the money from those jobs that enabled me to direct two features, um, Red Meat and, and Ask Me Anything. Um, the, one of the turning points is when the strike finally came in 2008. Right. Um, we would we would pick it all you know all morning and eat chocolate. I called it chocolate walking because they would donate all this candy. And since you're walking in circles under the the, the midday sun, I thought, well, you know, I'm burning a lot of calories, so I can just sit and eat all this crap. Right. Um, but I, I kind of enjoyed it because. And and, well, and they told us to set down our pens and not to write any screenplays. Mm-hmm. So I took the opportunity, freed from the teat of Hollywood money and temptation, to write a novel. So I'd wake up at 6 in the morning, as I always do. I'd write till 10 in the morning. And then I would walk in circles and be a proud union member. But meanwhile, I was writing Undiscovered Girl, which became Ask Me Anything. Um, so I sort of, oh, the strike. I don't know when I would have gotten around to writing that book, um, but I did. Um, and uh, and since then, I've tried to balance, you know, movie writing, directing, and writing novels. And I just finished the sequel to Undiscovered Girl. Um, and so I'm just, it's, to me, it's a balancing act mm-hmm. between the money you need to survive and the um, joy, I mean, the money you need to survive and the joy and sort of pride and feeling of authorship that I get from, um, you know, from being uh, from being a screenwriter. Hold on a second. From being a novelist. I'm going I'm to unplug my phone so that doesn't happen again. Okay, that's um, fine. No, so, so to me, it's a balancing act between sort of, you know, the, the art of being a novelist and a director and the fun but and um, and monetary necessity of being a screenwriter. I mean, if I could only do one forever, um, or I don't know what I'd do if I could do one, but I would certainly rather you know direct movies and um, write novels where I have control right. than write screenplays where I'm where I'm always no matter what tailoring what I want to say to the division of the the producers and the director. Right. Um, that's awesome. Uh, and first of all, congratulations on all all like your success in doing that because that's just that sounds so daunting and and so uh, like it's impressive that you can cultivate a career from that kind of experience of of just kind of just jumping into it that way that's really that's really impressive well you know it's it's less daunting when you're a maniac um <laughs> we, we, you know when you really feel a compulsion mm-hmm. 
to write. And when you wake up every morning and it's not a drudgery and it's not a, um, it's not a, a, ch- a chore or this thing that you dread, but it really comes out of some sort of profound coiled inner neurotic place that needs to make something out of the chaos of life. It becomes a sort of, it, be, it becomes a way of life. And it's like people who work out five or six days a week. Like we, you and I might dread going to the gym, but to them, it's the oxygen they breathe. Yeah. And that's what they think writers need to do is they need to, they need to get as addicted sort of to writing as jocks are to working out. Cause you know, nothing's as addictive uh, as writing and also nothing's as addictive as not writing. Mm-hmm. So once you start to not write, you get addicted to not writing and then you start to dread it. So what I've done, my solution is just then, you know, I, and actually in a really weird way, the computer and email has supported me in this because as long as my ass is in the chair at dawn and I stay there till lunchtime, it doesn't really matter, ironically, whether I'm writing or I'm literally like doing promotion for the book or writing emails or doing, you know, I don't know, my taxes, whatever the hell it is. I'm there, I'm focused, I'm in my office and I'm not getting up from the desk. And Mm -hmm. that's the way of life. And so then, you know, I finish something and a day or two later, I'm ready. I feel now what it, and I just move a new project in and I keep going. And that's how it's been. And all all it really required of me was to be very steadfast in, um, in trying and keeping it balanced and not just succumbing to the one thing and not being so foolhardy that I write novels and go broke and my family ends up bankrupt um, because I don't make any money writing books or just writing screenplays where you make money and you don't know what that and, and you know you your soul just dies on the vine. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you about your about your screenwriting career and your your experience with screenwriting because um, from what I understand you had you had a lot of. Um, kind of assignment projects from studios like I, I assume underworld uh was was an assignment how do you feel yes. with or how do you how do you feel about doing those assignment projects like that do you have like i mean i'm sure that as a creative person that you have you have more interest in doing a complete like a spec script or or your own yeah. project but how do you feel about the kind of system of of doing well, assignment projects almost every writer loves assignments because it's, you know, you know, you're getting paid and, um, you know, ideally I would never take an assignment that I didn't think I could do a good job with. I mean, when I've, I've never passed on an offer of work, I've never said, no, thank you, you know, keep your, but I don't get into the situation where anybody would offer me something unless I like it. I don't, I don't even pursue. So I've read things all the time where I go, oh, this will never be a good movie or this is just so awful. Or they want you to adapt a book, but you know, you'd have to throw out 95% of the book. So I go, what's the point? I'd rather write an original. Um, so, uh, I never, I, I never, um, I never pursue anything. I don't think I could do a good job with. Um, at the same time, what I discovered, especially after the strike and the recession in 2008 mm-hmm. was that you just, have to keep writing spec scripts. And what I did was I chased assignments like every other writer did. And then I realized to my horror that they had disappeared and that most of the jobs out there weren't even jobs. They look like jobs and then they would just disappear. They never make the movie or else there were so many writers up for it. They were just wasting your time that Hollywood really changed in a seismic way after 2008. Uh, um, Screenwriters quotes were like cut in half 
Um, the, the industry has doubled its profits since the strike, mm-hmm. and yet writers, all writers across the board, are making far less money. Um, you know, tech, they're doing TV shows where they have an order of 10 shows, mm-hmm. but, but the time it takes you to write them is as long as it used to take you to write 22, so you're making half the money for the same time. I mean, lots of things are changing in a very dramatic way, mm-hmm. and so my way to combat that was I just started writing spec after spec after spec. And I just always seemed to, I sort of discovered, a, you know, a, I don't know if it's a formula or a recipe for selling them, which is writing really big parts for actors and actresses and, um, and staying within uh, certain commercial guidelines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of, of those specs, a few have gotten made and a lot don't, but when you sell them, not only does it make you some money, but then it leads you to getting, usually then you get a couple of assignments mm-hmm. because you're kind of hot for a little while and they want, and your new script makes you relevant again. Nice. But a lot of writers that just, just stopped writing spec mm-hmm. and just did assignment, assignment, assignment. When that strike hit and the recession hit, their careers were just over. Mm-hmm. They just get, they just started teaching or retired mm-hmm. because it, those assignments, there used to be 30 of them for every movie that got made and it's just not that way anymore. Jeez. Wow, that's 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 a shame. That's I mean, yeah. it's it's a shame to see such a drastic change in in the business uh, in the business model of, of just Hollywood. And even from an outsider, I mean, it's just kind of crazy to see such a drastic change there. Um, right, right now, really, what it's about is talent finding capital. It's about the money looking for scripts and the scripts looking for money. The studios really aren't don't really make movies anymore except tentpole movies and they make some Oscar contenders for A-list directors, but they really aren't in the business of making movies the way they were. The number of output has drastically fallen. So really what you're looking for are the mini studios and independent financing. And then once the movie's complete, then you go out and get distribution. Okay. How do you feel about the independent, the independent film like scene, the, the kind of model of independent filmmaking? It's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's really bad. It is. I mean, you know, the advent of the digital camera and the ability to shoot cheaply has made it easier to make movies. But for the most part, it just means there's more bad movies out there. People are practically shooting them on, on their cell phones Mm -hmm. and, and they look terrible. And, and, um, but the sad reality, the reason I think it's really brutal right now is there's just, it's so hard to make your money back. Mm-hmm. Because the real indie cinema in America today is Netflix, yeah. and Netflix pays just pennies compared. So, if you let's say you have an indie movie that a million people see, in the old days, if they if those million people saw it in a movie theater, well, that was a hit movie, right? That would be like right. eight million dollars, right? Oh yeah. Um, let's say it was eight dollars a ticket or ten dollars a ticket. That would have been ten million dollars. It would be a hit movie. Um, and even if some of that was on DVD, it would still, there was a real return there. But now Netflix can pay an independent film $40,000 and a million people of their subscribers will see it in the first month. So they're just paying two, two and a half cents or whatever that is. My math isn't so great. But they're paying virtually nothing for those subscribers to see it. And the filmmakers might be thrilled. I mean, just mm-hmm. thrilled with the access to those people. But at the same time, you know, you want to pay your investors back. Right. So you know, and there's still some DVD out there. If there's if there's a commercial movie, there's still some pay per view, but it just doesn't add up. If you're going to make an indie film, you really should try to make it for you know two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I mean, if you want to make your money back, it's really really hard. 
So that's the dilemma. How, everyone's facing this in music, everywhere. It's like there's oh, yeah. all these choices, but nobody's getting paid. Like, how can you do it so that you can make another one? It's hard. Right. Yeah, that's that sounds just uh, that sounds horrible, but um, <laughs> it brings out. I'm sure it brings out uh, an amount of creativity that you kind of pour. Like, I I, I can see how it could be kind of. Um, demoralizing i guess to kind of pour your heart into into something that you're really you're really passionate about and then to kind of see it go that way but um in the- i'm thrilled listen i'm thrilled at how many people have seen uh, ask me anything mm-hmm. um it, it feels nice to be culturally relevant and i feel that among a certain age group the movie is really being seen rather widely mm-hmm. so i'm thrilled about that i just would would like to pay my investors back and i feel like it's going to be a long road because the vast majority of people that will ever see it are seeing it on Netflix where there just isn't a lot of money to be made. I mean, Showtime, Showtime, a lot of people saw it on Showtime also, but again, they don't, they don't pay a lot for an indie movie. Right. It's just, just the way it is. Yeah. Well, that's a shame because it really is an incredible movie and it's, it's great that it's, it's getting, it, it's at least getting into, you know, people's homes to be able to see it. Um, and, that, and that's great. I want, I think the timing of Britt Robertson was a, was a big plus because, mm-hmm. you know, our movie got delayed and being released for various boring um, logistical reasons. It was done a bit before it came out, um, but it ended up working out rather nicely, even though we opened it in December, which is a, you know, a bad month because, it, you know, it's, it's nothing's happening. Um, but it, it worked out well because it was right as Tomorrowland and The Longest Ride were about to open. Mm. So Brit was being known by a lot more people. I mean, we had 10,000 people a day watching Ask Me Anything on Netflix in the beginning. Uh, I'm sorry, 10,000 people reviewing it a day. Wow. They asked if they don't give you the exact numbers, but I've heard it's between three and five times as many people are watching it as review it. Okay. So you're talking about thirty to 50,000 people a day leading up to the, the release of Tomorrowland. Ooh. So that was really a big boon for the film. Oh, yeah. Well, that's great, and uh, and like I said, it gets, it gets the name out there, your, your name out there, and and I'm sure that'll hopefully get you and get you more projects and stuff like that. I oh, I wanted to ask you, this is your nice. second second film you've directed, the first being uh, Red Meat, and that was mm-hmm. in '97. Uh, yeah. What, what were the what were the differences between the experiences and and uh, between filming the two movies and they were kind of remarkably similar. I mean, when I finally directed a movie, I had been on a movie set. Gregory Hines had directed a movie I wrote, and he he was a first-time director. And just watching how how sort of passive and um, I'm going to be discreet and honoring a very talented man now deceased, but he really, really couldn't have been more lackadaisical about the whole process. Wow. And I thought, wow, and, and, and the movie was actually coherent. And I, But I learned a lot watching him sort of not do it. I said, my God, because I came from theater. I had directed plays. Mm-hmm. I knew a lot about acting. I knew a lot about how to work with actors. And so I, I saw this and I thought, God, you know, I can do this. This is not daunting. So when I finally had my first big spec sale, I had enough, you know, fuck you money that I could actually direct Red Meat because a couple of other people wanted to direct it. And I said, you know, I don't need to give this one away. I have enough money to say no. And I said, no, only only I can direct it. And they let me direct it. I made it for half a million dollars. We shot it in 18 days. And I really had the time of my life. Mm-hmm. And I felt that we had a very sane set. There wasn't a lot of 
craziness because, you know, the fish rots from the head down. I was a grown up at this point. I wasn't like an egomaniacal, insecure kid who was like screaming at people and saying, you know, that faucet has to have running water. You know, I would say, hey, you know, when he's washing his hands, you don't need running water because I'll just put in a sound effect. Mm-hmm. And the crew was staring. They couldn't believe that there was something I was letting go to make their lives better. You know, I was always trying to make it, make it work for people. And they seemed very grateful about it. And the actors were happy, and I was happy, and it was a great cast. And we, I just had an f- absolutely great time. If you had told me that I would not direct another movie for so many years after that, I would have just said impossible. Like, I found what I love to do. But then when I ran up against obstacles and I realized – and Red Meat had a lot of trouble – uh, it couldn't get into theaters because um, we didn't have a male lead because John Slattery was not famous then. And John Slattery, Madman, is the lead, and he's hilarious, and he runs around with his butt hanging out. And it's, it's, a, funniest, it's a funniest damn performance and, and, and scary performance. But um, And this guy, James Frain, is in it, who's a lovely actor who is now uh, works constantly. But again, no one knew these people. The only stars we had were Lara Flynn Boyle, and Jennifer Grey. So really, there was very hard to get into a theater. To get into theater, we were in like, you know, one theater. So, or maybe two. So, so we ended up being the first world premiere on the Sundance Channel. When they first launched their channel, they needed a movie to help launch it. So they did the world premiere on, on the channel. And so, you know, we made its money back, but I, it never really had its day. Mm-hmm. And it was a dark movie at a very politically correct time. Um, it was a movie about misogyny. And, you know, there are a lot of highly unintelligent people who see a movie about misogynists and think the movie is misogynistic, which is ridiculous because the movie, if anything, is skewering and examining and turning misogyny inside out. But um, so it was a very dark movie at a time when people were very politically correct, Mm -hmm. which is what's starting to happen again. It's it's coming full circle. But anyway, so so the movie didn't really lead to much for me. So I... um, I just went, and then when I wanted to feel like an author again, which I felt as a director, I just went and began writing novels. Because I wrote all my novels after that. Okay. And so uh, that, that sort of fulfilled me. And then it was only recently when I realized that if I didn't make Ask Me Anything, no one else was going to, that I said, what the hell? And, and a young producer went out and found $300,000 to get us started. And I had just finished the script, so I thought, well, this is perfect timing. Let's just dump in and do this. And thank God I did because I'm very proud of it. And it was another one. It was another just a great experience. Mm-hmm. With Ask Me Anything, there was – I don't want to I don't want to get into spoilers, obviously, because part of the the experience of seeing it is, is not to be spoiled. Um, even though I feel like that movie <laughs> – the way that the way that the movie plays out makes it really hard to spoil without uh, in terms of in terms of build up it's it's such it's such an emotional like roller coaster that like even even having the 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 idea in my head of there being something significant to the end of the story like i i wasn't prepared for what exactly it was and it was just it was really it was really impressive and uh, about doing a movie like that mm-hmm. is this marketplace where marketing is always aimed toward the path of least resistance. So because it's a movie about a beautiful young girl, they go, okay, let's get the kids, especially the females. Let's get teenagers. So the marketing, which you, which you pointed out, I thought really eloquently in your review, um, the marketing is completely geared, you know, toward creating an illusion 
that it's a sex comedy mm-hmm. and maybe a slightly edgy one, maybe, but you still kind of think it's going to, it's like a slightly edgier, but it has an Amanda Bynes look, that poster. It drives me crazy. <laughs> and so what happens is, but you know, it's hard to sell a movie that has a surprise ending. Mm-hmm. And like, what movie do people think they're watching until they find out what they are watching? And they're afraid that if they build it as a drama, then it will turn off young people who just want to have fun on a Saturday night, you know. So it gets really complicated. Marketing is a bitch in this world. So they figure, okay, let's just go get all the young girls. Some of their boyfriends and friends will watch it and hope that those people like it so much that it slowly widens out to adults. But I'm going to tell you, man, it's very hard to get adults to watch the movie. It really is. They just can't imagine it's for them when they see the poster. Yeah, it's it's you know? one of those... And, and it, them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like I, 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 mean, I, I, have friends, I have friends in their 50s and 60s who really like it, but they would never have watched that movie anymore. And by the way, they wouldn't have picked up the book either because mm-hmm. the book g- g- has a completely YA cover. Like it's just a, like it's just sort of chick lit and it's going to be about designer brand names and <laughs> hair and boys. And that's what it looks like. And or maybe it looks a little more soulful than that, but not much. You know, so as I like to say, if, you know, if Kretcher and the Rye were written today, it would be a YA novel. And to me, that's really a chilling reality. But it's absolutely the truth. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, in transitioning from uh, or adapting your novel to to a screenplay, you obviously had to make had to make some cuts and everything. Um, did you feel like you were you had to part with anything in particular that was that was that was important in terms of saving time or anything like that? Or, or was it kind of a, kind of an experience where you knew the, you knew the beats and you knew the characters enough to where you could do it? In well, a... You know, I had waited three years before I adapted it. So I had the necessary distance from the material. It would have been very painful to do it at a sooner time, but at this point it was easier in my final shooting script. It was 103 pages or 105 pages. There was more stuff from the book once we shot it and I started distilling it, I could do without less and less and less. And I just kept trying to distill it down to the essence of the story. Um, but um, there was one more guy uh, in the script that I did shoot. but I And it's actually a, a guy that went on to um, have a good career, Jesse Smollett from Empire. Oh, okay. Um, so he's sort of becoming a star now. And he played a one-night stand that she has at a bar. And um, and he starts to call and get kind of creepy. And um, and there was just one too much. It was like just one, you know, in a book that's a few hundred pages, there's a lot of sex, but it didn't feel that extreme. But in a 90-minute in a movie, it felt like she was getting laid an awful lot. And it started to get kind of dismal and depressing mm-hmm. that her self-esteem was so low. So he had to, that had to go. Um, and, you know, there were a few other there were a few other little tiny kind of sub things that went but I felt, you know, I just I started to leave the book way behind and just see it as a living, breathing new entity that had to make sense for a new audience, and it wasn't painful really at all. But I, I did read when I when I wrote Another Girl, I did reread Undiscovered Girl, and it was fun to revisit it and to remind myself of all like when she works for Obama and all her political radicalism, you know, she's all inspired. And she won't vote for Hillary because Hillary looks like her has has farm and ankle. And then, and then when you think she's gotten all politically ideal, this is a line that freaked people out. She starts to have sex with one of the characters, and she basically says that as long as she can have sex with him, she doesn't care if Hitler's president. 
<laughs> I think I highlighted that line in, in my uh, in yeah. my Kindle. <laughs> I love when these people like freak out on a seventeen-year-old girl who's just being funny and crazy. It's like it's just so funny to me. And of course, they act like I said that. Like <laughs> I don't care if Hitler's president. Like you know, it's just so funny. Um, but no, Katie definitely has a bigger, wilder, kind of more manic, abundant, humorous personality in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just no way a movie can just give vent to that much language and whimsy and humor. There's so much going on in her than a book. In a book, she can just prattle at us for, you know, for 300 pages, and you just can't do that in a movie. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that really drew me to both both the movie and, and the book uh, was the um, – the uh, I, am I pronouncing this word correctly? The uh, uh, epistolary – epistolary uh, epistolary there we go I've really only ever read that word but um, (laughs) the epistolary format among autodidacts is that every now and then they run into a word they've read 40 times and they've never said it out loud like when my brother in high school said something was the epitome of something Uh, About uh, a few months ago I ran into a situation where I realized that I was told very politely that I've pronounce the word aesthetic with a hard ae so it's like i i've been pronouncing aesthetic as aesthetic for years um yeah but uh with with that format of of storytelling i just something like i i could connect with that that kind of blogger kind of uh storytelling uh device because i mean like when i was a teenager i had like my own little personal blog and and it was an it was a fun creative outlet and i could see in 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 the way that the the character wrote, I could see how there was kind of layers to her personality that were sh- that were shown through through subtext and and especially in the book and then and then I, I felt like uh, Britt Robert uh, Britt Robertson really really embodied that role incredibly well um, mm-hmm. in terms of just showing her na- her naivete and. Uh, but like kind of almost self-awareness in, in the way that she like you can tell. I don't know if this was intentional when, when you wrote it, but in, in the book, like she'll have these passages will, where she'll say something and then it's like she'll give away like she'll comment on the behavior of one of the men in her life. And it would be like almost with the intention of her of, or it would be almost with the awareness of, of what kind of person they are and how they view her but she'd be it she would say it with such a such a uh a naive kind of kind of like blinder of of love like a love obsessed sick like love yeah, sick I think, person I think she goes in and out of moments of really sharp clarity about the motives of men and then a kind of self-will sort of blind um uh, rose-colored glasses view of them because she's in love and i think teenage girls do this a lot like you sort of when you're in a like they'll get in a fight and they'll say they'll say it right on the nose. They see it, they know it, and then four days later they miss the guy, and then eight days later they're over in his bed again. Yeah, and you know, and, and young men do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you like you know she's she's playing you, or you know, you know she's not sincere, or she's never going to be there for you, and yet you keep convincing yourself that somehow you know she will. Um, Brit, Brit, uh, I can't. I have only the most amazing things to say about her as an actress. She was just so such a pleasure to work with. I mean, talk about a professional. She's like grimly serious about her work. She does not mess around. Like she really takes it seriously and works really, really hard. 
And I almost felt like we had a telepathic connection at times. I always knew exactly what she was doing. I could, I could see every wheel turning exactly. She has a great ability to, to show um, what she's thinking, what her characters are thinking. You can read her in a really great way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I have nothing but respect for her. Yeah, the the way that she just kind of, like I said, embodied the role, it was very, like, she kind of, I, I mentioned in my review that she kind of has this this kind of faux innocence that she kind of, kind of she kind of puts on this, this front when she talks to especially her parents that, like, I felt like that was just a, a certain nuance to her, to her performance that was just really, yeah. really remarkable. Um, and I just really appreciated that. And seeing, like, seeing that, and then going and reading the character on the page was just it was it was a really nice kind of cohesive experience because you can kind of tell that she really tapped into the to the character in the story. Watching those scenes with Martin Sheen was amazing because here's Martin, a guy in his 70s who's been in so many movies with the supreme technique. And here's a girl that's been the lead on TV shows who really understands the camera already. And they were like two veterans together. There was like an immediate respect. Like he basically did a scene with her and looked at me and his look said, holy Christ, you found the real deal here. You know, <laughs> and, and, I, and I knew he was right. Um, um, hold on one second. I'm going to tell them to turn off the, um, the leaf blower. Okay. One second. Okay, we're, we're nice and quiet again. Okay. That gave your, that gave your viewers time to... Uh, to um, do a Google image search of Britt Robertson's love scenes. <laughs> right. In my movie. Oh my God! There's all crazy sites on Twitter and stuff. Mm-hmm. I see it on my feet all the time. Like, you know, first time nude Britt Robertson. Yeah. It's like, oh. She's barely. I mean, she's like, you know, barely shows. I mean, really, yeah. it's not a bad at all. It's very tastefully done, and it's very. Right. It's. I, it's obviously very. Uh, very important to the story and it's not like well, what, you know, what you don't want is an inhibited actress who's uptight self-conscious and reaching for sheets mm-hmm. and all that crap and all i kept saying to the actresses i'm not having people you know reaching for sheets and having things up to their neck you know it's so embarrassing when that happens how about like in girls which is a show that i love but every time she has sex in broad daylight not lena dunham but but the other the, the you know what's her face um and she has sex in broad daylight in her bedroom, like from behind, and she's always wearing a shirt. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I just don't understand. Like, why don't they just turn the lights off? Um, but, uh, yeah, I didn't want any of it. I didn't want anything where for a moment you're aware of it. So that's why – and I didn't want anything that was supposed to be just about sexuality. I wanted it always to be something emotional or something funny or something painful that's happening in the scene, and she just happens to be partially clad. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm also, I'm also making the viewer into a voyeur constantly yeah and again some viewers misinterpret that and they actually think that like i'm the voyeur like they don't get it that they're the voyeur i'm the filmmaker like <laughs> i'm not sitting looking in brit's window you're looking in brit's window right you know, it's such a but it's such a difference you know and i saw someone wrote some proud young feminist wrote something about the male eye is all over that movie you're like well of course <laughs> it is um, and that's why when we finally do glimpse her a little bit naked, mm-hmm. it's at the very end of the film when she's getting in the bath and it's all over now. And she's in like this purifying bath and you and you think like smooth sailing ahead. And it's it was important to have right to the end. Like I, It's very self-conscious, for instance, that during one of her more painful moments, she's lying in bed, like weeping her guts out, covered in sweat, miserable because some terrible thing has happened in her life. And she's literally wearing like underwear with little cherries on it. 
it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally, in a sense, Lolita eyes her right at a moment when she's in her deepest emotional thing, mm-hmm. because, a, a trial, because the audience is being put into the same role as the people feasting on her blog and the reaction that young, beautiful women get everywhere they go, which is that they're in our world that we live in, maybe the, the planet we live on, young, beautiful women have a tremendous amount of power, but they also have that same power can create really ugly, um, objectifying, predatory um, behavior from men. Yeah. And so that's always at play. Oh, yeah. That's – wow. That Yeah, that that is – I totally get that kind of kind of insight into it, and and the viewer is kind of a, a voyeur in the sense of you know obviously being part of uh, the our first shot audience. of her. We're, the first shot of her, we're outside her window, and we're looking in her window. I mean, the first shot of her blogging, I should right, say. Right, right. Like, yeah. Hmm. Um, actually, is it? No, no. Actually, I, I edited for so long. It's our very, isn't it? Our very, it's our very first glimpse of her. Is her saying, um, wait a minute, what? I feel so ridiculous. I'm so tired right now. My, my kids get me up at four in the morning. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's it's one of our very first glimpses of her. We're seeing her through the window when she's blogging. Yeah. And and we're caught when she's alone at night and she's all alone in that dark room. We're outside the window. We're rarely inside the window. Yeah, you definitely revisited that that kind of shot, that is, or at least that kind of establishing shot of, of her blogging in that in that frame. And that, that – uh, Definitely in bed, on, how about in bed on Christmas night. Mm-hmm. She's in bed on Christmas night. We see her from like two different windows. And at the end, she finally closes the curtain in our faces. Finally, at the very end, she sl- she slams it shut in our faces. And then what do we see? Then we suddenly we're in her closet and she's taking off her clothes. I mean, hmm. yeah, none uh, of it's by accident. I can tell you that much. <laughs> right. Uh, and that, that definitely is communicated very well. Um, and I also wanted to ask you, and I don't want to run your, I don't want to, uh, have, keep you too long, but um, in terms of the men in in the movie and in the story, there's a very a wide variety of different types of men. Like there's the relationship with her father, and then also kind of um, I, I mentioned I mentioned this in the review, and I'm not I'm not sure. Like this was my interpretation of it, but the this uh, her mother's boyfriend, played by uh, Andy Buckley, uh, he is. I, I get the sense that he is like he's just a very he he could be a very positive force in her life, but she's so she's so young and combative against him, just for the sole reason that that she that he's that he's you know invading her her home life from her perspective. Um, so she's very kind of uh, very very. It's ironic that she actually has a loving man in her life. That she only has one moment with him where she's not fighting him mm-hmm. and that's when he intervenes and helps her with her boyfriend and she says thank you yeah um that's the only moment and it's and it's sort of that way in the book i mean she really is hard you know she's tough on him mm-hmm. which is ironic i mean think about the people that are really really good for her well there's her shrink there's her stepdad and there's joel seidler mm-hmm. and um and you know she doesn't let those three people have that much of an effect on her. She does by the end, mm-hmm. but it takes a lot. And, 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 you know, in a way, and Glenn Warburg, you know, I mean, Glenn in yeah. a way, her book burner, but you know, in every case, she's kind of not really letting that person have the full impact that they could. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and that sh- the way that you shot that scene where, where um, 
I won't give away what happens, but the scene where, where he intervenes, where, where her stepfather intervenes, yeah. like the way that that was shot, I really, I just love the way that the kind of action is focused on her and, and Rory. And then, and then the camera kind of swoops around as, as, as he comes in. And it's just, I, I really appreciate that it's from a technical standpoint. It's all one shot. It was all one shot. You know, when you make an indie movie, if you're lucky, you have four takes. You usually have two, sometimes three. I mean, you really have to get it. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing it in one shot, the good news is it's two-thirds of a page that you've got done. But what happens if it isn't just the way you want it? You're in big trouble. And that was the first take. And his head, Corey's head went right through the wall. He leaves a big dent in the plasterboard. Mm-hmm. She rock has a huge dent in it. And we were all kind of in shock. And we thought it was great. And I, I, I was ready to go print, you know, like print, moving mm-hmm. on. But everybody said, well, you know, you can't do that. So we went ahead and shot a few more, and none of them equaled that first one, that sort of shocking. And we had rehearsed it a bit, mm-hmm. but a lot of that, because it's so physical and violent, you're sort of leaving it up to the, what happens at the moment. And it just was a little piece of, you know, movie magic. It just worked out really well. And if you look carefully, in the way in the deep background, you see her mother writing a religious painting. It, it's crooked. And she's putting it right, like way in the background. It all worked really seamlessly. Nice. So, yeah, I yeah. went back and like while while I was watching it, I actually paused and rewound it because I it, I just loved the way that, that that just flowed so naturally through that through that one shot, and I I really like that. Um, I'll give you something for film geeks that you'll appreciate. When she kicks him off her, mm-hmm. there is a, an edit in there. Uh, it's like a jump cut. Okay. Because what happened was there was this weird little hesitation before she kicked him, and it was just a little. And, and they and uh-huh. the editor just we just snipped it out, and it and it, and your eye barely catches it, but it, it makes it feel more violent. But you'll mm-hmm. see it if you ever watch it again. You'll see this weird little cut right at the moment she kicks him off. Nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'll, I mean, I'll definitely be watching it again, and I'll now, definitely be. I'll definitely be uh, uh, suggesting it to to people because this is the kind of movie that it kind of it inspires a lot of conversation. And it was like I like I mentioned when I when I tweeted about it after I watched it, there was a there was a moment where as the credits started rolling, I was just sitting in my apartment like like right here where I am now. And I was just had this dumbfounded look on my face and I kind of. This was this was around like eleven. It was right around the time I was about to go to bed for the night, and I had to work in the morning. And I was just like, like I it, I needed time to process what what had happened and what what exactly I had seen. And it was just such a such a rare experience for me to have because it's usually just. I mean, I can. It's so rare to get that kind of that kind of emotional resonance from me. Um, What's so frustrating is I've always felt that there was a big male audience for this movie. And I noticed on Twitter when guys do tweet about it, 90% of them really love it. And they don't get all like as freaked out by the ambiguities as a lot of the female viewers do who get more invested in her and they want it all tied up. They want to know everything. The boys seem less, I don't know. I just noticed this. Like the boys seem less upset that they don't know everything. So maybe your podcast and your review will help to give guys permission to see it because the poster, it really only gives you permission to see it. If you're male, if you think you're going to see some nudity and sex, right. that's all it promises to the average young man. Yeah. And, and it kind of, the, it's so deceptive in the, in the marketing of that. And it's, I, it's, I mean, there's humor in it. There, it's, 
it's a there's there's some kind of dark humor throughout the movie and but it's 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 a really it's a really gripping coming of age tale about the this girl that is finding herself and finding just really kind of organic ways to deal with kind of some some pretty uh some pretty dark shit. <laughs> Um, and it's just, it was such a, it was such a, such a great experience watching it and, and, uh, and being able to go into that ending with, with no real idea what was going to happen. And, uh, and if you don't mind, I was going to see if you wanted to do like a, a, if you wanted to answer like a couple questions about the ending or, and, and I can cut it and put it at the end of the episode to, for people that don't want to see it. But if you don't, if you'd rather stay silent about I, it, then I don't mind. I mean, I, don't, I may not have the, I may not have any answers, but I'll try. <laughs> so you're going to say like spoiler. Okay, so that concludes the interview portion of the of the podcast, the the non spoiler interview portion, at least uh, of my interview with Allison Burnett. I just want to say once again, thank you to Allison for, for joining me on the podcast and talking to me about his career and, and about his, his feelings on independent filmmaking and, and about the experience of, 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 of adapting, ask me, uh, uh, undiscovered girl and to ask me anything and, and just everything. It was, it was such a blast to get to talk to him. And, uh, I did talk to him briefly about the ending to ask me anything, but, um, as I've talked about it before on the podcast, it's something that you definitely need to see if you're, if you're going to see it. So, um, I've cut that from this podcast episode and I've put it after the pre-recorded outros that, that you'll hear with, uh, with Mike, um, here after the outro music in a bit. But, um, just before I, before we get to that, I just want to say, uh, once again, thank you to Allison Burnett and you can find him on Twitter at Allison underscore Burnett and find his website at AllisonBurnett.com and also email the character, the main character from undiscovered girl and ask me anything, Katie Campenfelt at katiecampenfelt.com. Of course you can find all the links to everything on here, including the link to my, my, uh, my, my review of Ask Me Anything on ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find all of that in the show notes of this episode. And, uh, yeah, so thank you for listening. And uh, make sure that make sure that if you listen to the spoiler section, you do it after you watch Ask Me Anything because it's uh, definitely, a, definitely a movie that I'll, I'll be championing for a while and uh, definitely worth seeing and worth not being spoiled on. So once again, thank you and... We'll see you later this week with an episode with me and Tiny about Straight Outta Compton. Join the Obsessive Viewer podcast on October 16th, 2015 at the Irving Theater in Indianapolis for The Obsessive Viewer Presents Shocktober in Irvington Part 2. It's a one-night event screening of short horror films from local artists J.P. Leck and Synapshot Productions. There will be giveaways, raffles, interviews with the filmmakers, and so much more. All proceeds will go directly to the Irvington Historical Society. Go to shocktoberinirvington.com for more details and prepare to be shocked. Thank you for listening to The Obsessive Viewer, presented by obsessiveviewer.com. You can find more of our episodes at ovpodcast.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. 
The Obsessive Viewer's theme song is An Eclipse of Events and is provided by Loud Like from their EP Mistakes We Must Make. You can find that and more great music from them on iTunes and like their Facebook page at facebook.com slash loudlikemusic. Any and all feedback on the podcast is encouraged. You can email the hosts individually at Matt, Tiny, or Mike at obsessiveviewer.com or send an email to the podcast in general at podcast at obsessiveviewer.com. Check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where we post movie and TV reviews and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Obsessive Viewer and follow us on Twitter at Obsessive Viewer, at Obsessive Tiny, and at I am Mike White. If you want more obsessive content in your life, check out our sister site, obsessivebooknerd.com, for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com and subscribe to the podcast on the podcatcher of your choice. Again, thank you so much for listening. We love you. Be excellent to each other. So if you have not seen Ask Me Anything yet, uh, please, please go watch the movie and then come back and listen to this section of the podcast. Um, you would be doing yourself a big, big favor uh, by not listening to this, uh, this portion of the podcast. Um, so what I wanted to say, I, I don't really have questions for you because I'm, I'm a fan of ambiguity in, in endings. I, I like it when a filmmaker can, can create a story that, that is thought-provoking and I don't need it like wrapped up tidy. Like I don't need to know if she's if she's alive or dead. I don't need to know who did it. But what I wanted to just kind of communicate to you, really, that the that that ending when when it transitioned to to the kind of uh, the kind of documentary kind of style of of filmmaking and, and the way that the 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 reveal was handled with the mother's the mother's blog entries and like I was just. It, it just chilled me because it, it put me in a point where I could where I could see like like the hour and a half that I spent previous to that was like like all leading up to this thing that you see all the time on the news like young girls going missing and and you kind of I, I felt like it was a very private kind of viewpoint into this this thing that the news has has done so often lately in terms of creating this um, um, or, or telling the story of these, these, you know, missing girls. And it's just, it was very, it was just very sobering to see that and being it, being able to put the, it's sad to think, it's sad to think that like when you hear about a missing girl, it's, you're almost desensitized to it anymore because it happens so frequently and, and it gets, you know, some of them get like big media attention and it's, it's really sad to see that be. What's interesting, what's interesting is that there are people, I don't think it was you, but you tell me who actually, when they see the movie, they think that at the end that those are real people. I, uh, I didn't, I didn't mention this or anything, but uh, I I sat through and I watched I watched until the end credits because I wanted to, I was I was wanting to see I was I was like really really hoping I would see the based on fictional or it's fictional and all that because I I was so invested in this character in the story that well, I was, the easiest thing to do is it just look that there are names 
for all the actors who play those people at the end. I mean, they're extras. They're just extras. And I purposely cast people that resembled the people in the story, but not quite. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like the, the poor man's version or something. Or like they were, the, in fact, ironically, the beautiful girl that plays Mrs. Spooner at the end mm-hmm. is a lovely actress who is constantly has been up against Kimberly Williams <laughs> for parts that she has wow. not received. And I just thought it was really kind of ironic. Yeah. Um, but um, but uh, there are people like I see on Twitter. Some a girl will say, "Oh my God, I just saw Ask Me Anything. I loved it, but I don't understand the ending at all." And a friend goes, "What don't you understand? It's all a true story." And those are and they're and those people at the end are the real people, and they're trying to help you, and maybe you can help find her. And, mm. and I'm kind of stunned, and I don't even really know what to say. Like yeah. like you know, um, I never saw that coming. I never mm. thought that would happen. I just thought of a movie's a movie. Yeah. And. You know, if it were a true story, then it would say something like, if you know anything about Katie, you know, something. Um, Anyway, um, but for me, the meaning of the movie has to do with not knowing. It has to do with the the world of social media, the way we get lost in it, the the world of illusion that surrounds it, um, the way young people hide the truth in the way that they self-promote and Mm -hmm. self-brand. And that mixed with the idea that this beautiful young girl, she doesn't stand a chance. I mean, she doesn't understand the, the since she was a little girl and she got abused, she's she's never really stood much of a chance. And then she had that for a father and a mother who was so disengaged. And the only agency and power she feels in the world is through her sexuality. Mm-hmm. And she's drawing these men like moths to a flame. So it doesn't matter when the mother says, you know, I ask myself who would want to hurt my daughter and I hear the answer, everyone. It's because there's hatred for her from her blog viewers. Mm -hmm. There's hostility toward her. They hate her sexuality that they're constantly calling her a whore. They hate her because she's pregnant. You've got every which way, every way you look, this girl is under siege. I'm not saying she doesn't do things that make her partially responsible, but the context that she was born into and who she is and her rare kind of beauty just puts her in a really horrendous situation. And then you add that to the miasma of social media and you have this creature that just appears and is gone. Yeah. It's and in the book you feel that she could have she could have disappeared on her own. She mm-hmm. could have run away because she couldn't handle all this. But it, in a way, the not knowing to me is what makes it a modern story. And if it had just ended when it could have ended on the Ferris wheel, I mean, in the roller coaster at the end, mm-hmm. I think it would just be a movie about one girl. Yeah. And I think now it's really a movie about a lot of girls and a lot of, and, and our culture. Absolutely. And I think that that was really handled incredibly well. And I noticed that um, and, and this can be the final thing, but um, the exclusion of the one night stand from from the book um, I don't I don't know how to phrase it without without kind of spoiling spoiling the book in any way. But was that just a just a time constraint uh, yeah. measure? Okay. So we actually, actually well, well we actually shot it mm-hmm. and it was Jesse Smollett and it just felt like one too many dudes she was sleeping mm-hmm. with. It just kind of didn't work and it felt depressing and it was too long. And it, it, to, to put it bluntly, she just felt like too slutty. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just too much. Okay. And once we took it out, everything came alive and felt freer and lighter. You know, she was only sleeping with people that she really kind of believed that she loved mm-hmm. in a way. 
and um, that just sort of made it easier. Okay. Um, and time too, like you know, this is a movie like you just didn't want to. You can't wear out your welcome in this day and age. Like you know, you just can't have a movie that drags. And I don't think anybody could watch this movie and go, "Oh, I know where this is going." Oh yeah, I know. I'm bored. I'm restless. You know, some people stop watching because they don't like Katie. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never. I believe some of the prudery of <laughs> of the young people these days. Like I come from the '60s. Like I remember when young people, like we were the coolest. Like we were the ones that were about free love, and the adults were square. Now the girls are like, "Oh my God, it's so sexual." This <laughs> girl, she's such a slut. Or some guy will go, "Yeah, it's basically a movie about a hoe." You know, it's like <laughs> the judgmental nature. Yeah, it just cracks me up. Yeah, I think yeah. that that maybe that's an extension of the kind of uh, self branding and, and kind of kind of the the kind of way that everyone of, of this time period kind of puts themselves out there in social media, and maybe that's kind of maybe that's more a reaction to being exposed to to just any kind of ridicule from anyone on the internet at any time. Um, that's how I feel, at least. But uh, I can't imagine. I can't believe like. The horror it must be to be in high school and now sitting around wondering why why hasn't she texts me in twelve mm-hmm. minutes and oh my god we bro we had one fight and now she changed her status on Facebook and <laughs> all that madness oh my god all we had was the telephone you know yeah. you know I, like you would dial six numbers <laughs> and then you would you dial the seventh number and hold it and take a deep breath and get the courage to let go and you let go and you would dial the seventh number and then you knew you were going to talk to her you know like that was our biggest thing we didn't have any of this shit I would go nuts yeah I I uh, I I got out of high school right before Facebook started and I'm so happy every single day that Facebook was not a thing when I was in like the most vulnerable state of my life <laughs> because that uh, that would have been just yeah. soul crushing. Um, well, listen, I think technology is meeting us at the perfect time because you're sort of breaking up now. Oh, yeah, kind yeah. Of pixelating on my end. Okay. It was a great pleasure, Matt. And uh, let's do it when the next movie comes out or the next book. And um, and thank you for reading the books and reading Another Girl, and we'll talk soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's It's been a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll – tell, tell your listeners they can always tweet me or write – or. Um, email me through my website. Okay. I will definitely, definitely do that. Yeah. And they can always write to Katie Campenfeld at katiecampenfeld.com. <laughs> Is that a real site? Check it out, dude. Oh, wow. Oh. That's going to be interesting. Yeah. I, it is. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you. <laughs>